The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 11th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. I feel so bad for people who are watching online because when I start to talk to get you guys back, I often speak louder than I do when I, I preach. And even with the mic on, you still don't hear me, but that's all they hear. Like they're getting the mic feed straight into the TV. So they're probably refilling their coffee and all of a sudden, sit down, you know, like, oh, okay. And you guys are just going on and on and on. Um, but there we go. All right, good to see you guys. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs 28. We are going to return this morning to our our walk around in the book of Proverbs. And after we spent the last several weeks doing that with, with different pastors, and you want to take a moment this week to thank them for serving us and leading us in that way. If you see Pastor D, I don't know if D is D around? Demetrius around? You can give him a, a, an extra hug because he jumped in last week with late notice because some crises emerged during the week and people were not around and people had to fly out and he jumped in to to lead us last week uh, and he wasn't scheduled to. So give him a big hug when you see him, uh, when he makes it in. Uh, But this week we are going to return to our little journey in the book of Proverbs. And Book of Proverbs, by way of reminder for those of you that have been with us, or maybe introduction uh, for those of you that are just joining us, the book of Proverbs opens up in, in the very beginning and informs us the purpose or the intent behind the book. Proverbs opens up by saying that its intent is that you and I would know wisdom, to know wisdom. And when we first started to look at this book, we said that to know wisdom is to become skilled at living in God's world under God's rule for God's glory and your deepest joy. Skilled at living in God's world under God's rule. That's life according to reality. God is the one who created all things and he is the one who knows what brings life and vitality and flourishing to his creation. How creation works. Wisdom is learning to live skillfully in God's world according to reality for his glory, for our deepest joy. That's where deep vitality and joy is experienced. My friends, this is to be our our greatest desire to live skillfully in God's world for his glory and our deepest joy. And so the book of Proverbs begins to unpack for us the reality that there are only two ways in which you and I live in God's world. The way of wisdom, recognizing that he is the central organizing reality of all things, that he defines reality and flourishing and joy and living according to that or the way of folly, foolishness. You and I living wise in our own eyes according to our own ideas and our own wisdom with ourselves being the central organizing, controlling reality of our lives. 
And throughout the book, and we, we've seen it over the last several weeks if you've been with us, wisdom and folly in these Proverbs and in these sayings are, are juxtaposed against each other, exposing each other exposing the reality of wisdom and folly. And it's not just that, but within each of those pictures that we're given, we're, we're also given a glimpse and of a reminder in the foolishness of how sin has shattered what God created as good. Within each of these little proverbs, it's a, it's a gift of God's loving grace to expose to us the folly that's still lurking in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our motives, in our actions, in our lives. Each of these little proverbs is another reminder of God's ongoing steadfast love and generosity to actually give such kind wisdom to fools like us. And in each of these little proverbs, there's a picture and a, a pointer to a world and a longing that we were created for that one day will be realized in Jesus when foolishness will be no more. Folly will be gone. Proverbs, it's way more than just fodder for Christian Twitter. Most of them will fit in Twitter these days, but it's not just that. The book of Proverbs is a gift of God's grace that helps you and me live under God's rule. In his world, reality, to actually see and live in reality for his glory and our deepest joy. To live a life of blessing as the Bible defines it. To live a life of prosperity as the Bible understands it. That's what we were made for. Right, in 1968, writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he, he was commenting on this reality. He spoke to it when he said that to desire God, this is the sum and substance of life. It's not just one injunction of many, but the greatest commandment. It's not merely a duty to fulfill, but the fulfillment of life itself. To love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength there is no greater blessing than to give oneself to this pursuit and listen, to enjoy the everlasting longing it produces in us. It is the sum and substance of life to live skillfully according to reality as God defines it for his glory and our joy. And we've been scratching at this over the last several months, or, or at least I have, as we've been, been going through different texts. If you were with us and we spent time in Psalm 119, we were considering what it is to be blessed according to the scripture and what a life of blessing according to God's word and grace begins to look like. And, and then right before Easter in the season of Lent, we considered what kind of obstacles get in the way of us living this kind of vitality and prosperity with God in Christ. What kind of things seduce our hearts and draw our hearts away from delight and desire of him and his presence with us? What, what begins to draw our, our hearts away from that? And even now, I keep kind of coming back to it because it keeps becoming increasingly obvious that the Western church, at least, is, is living with a, a pretty low-grade or, or mid-grade level of spiritual malaise, spiritual blahs, 
not much vitality. And I've been coming to grips with the reality of this, not only in the church, in particular in the West, but in my, my own heart, that when it comes down to it, we really don't desire him as we ought, as we were created to. It's pretty easy for us to get wrapped up knowing things about him and, and doing things for him, but and really being with him? Really desiring to be with him? One writer said that our good works, and when they say good works, what they're talking about is just the activity of the Christian life. He's talking about all the Bible reading, the praying, the gathering, the serving, all the things when they say good works, right? He said our good works can actually become a barrier to delight and desire and the experience of God in our heart lulling us into complacency as to the state of our heart and replacing a life oriented towards knowing and loving God with a life full of religious activity. And it's easy for us to just drift through life with a collection of truths that we assent to, activities that we engage in, but live with this very low-grade sense of joy Low-grade sense of spiritual vitality. Low-grade sense of connection and true intimacy with God. Even having a low-grade sense of worry that's constantly running through it like a stream that maybe he's still just upset with me. Friends, how do we begin to recover a, a vibrant sense of this longing for him this desiring to commune with him? How do we recover this, this desperate desire for independence upon him and his power presently? What does it look like living skillfully in his reality for his glory and our joy with vitality? Well, Proverbs chapter 28, in particular verse 13, is going to give us some wisdom to consider in this regard. If you've got it open, 28 verse 13, it reads this way in the ESV. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let me read it to you in the New Living Translation. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Maybe one more to, to bring it home, the message. You can't whitewash your sins and get by with it. You find mercy by admitting them and leaving them. You see, wisdom in God's world Wisdom, learning to increasingly live skillfully and well according to reality as God defines it, seems to indicate here that the fullness of life that God holds out for us, this prospering, the, the blessing as the psalmist speaks of it in Psalm 119, prospering as it speaks here in Proverbs chapter 28, vitality, the fullness of life that God holds out for us is experienced by us, experienced in us, 
in direct proportion to our willingness to quit hiding and redefining and ignoring and even concealing our sin. There's a direct relationship. Said another way, we experience what we read about in Jesus' words in the book of Matthew, a life with him that is free and light with him and his church to the degree that confession and repentance become reflexive to us, become a reflex in our heart and life and concealing our sin or whitewashing our sin, as the message says, becomes repulsive to us. The fullness of life, the vitality of life, that which God holds out to us and has for us, that desire and enjoyment of him, there's a direct relationship between our concealment of our sin and our confession of our sin and the degree to which we enjoy what God has for us. Let me clarify something real quick as we get started. We've probably said it around here in the last 15 years. You've probably heard it before. But there's the statement that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing that you could do to make God love you less in Jesus, right? You heard it before? It's familiar? It's true, right? It's true. In Jesus, you cannot become more justified or more forgiven or more redeemed than you already are. Well, listen to me, Christian. That does not mean that you can't displease God. It doesn't mean that your life cannot become out of step with God's spirit. Sin is still grievous to God. It's still offensive to him. And our sin has an impact. It doesn't have an impact on our once for all forgiveness in Jesus that's sealed by his blood, but it has a direct impact on our vitality on the intimacy, on the connection, on the delight, on the enjoyment, on the desire of actually being with God. It has a direct impact on our capacity to actually enjoy the very thing we confess to be true. Right? There, there is a kind of concealment and a kind of privacy about sin that can absolutely dull our confidence in the gospel can absolutely sap our spiritual vitality and joy. And at the same time, it seems to be in the wisdom of God's word and walking in the reality of his world that there is a profound joy and happiness that comes in living humbly and clean with him and with others. So to bring the wisdom of Proverbs 28, 13 to life, to help kind of illustrate it and give it flesh, we're actually going to look at a couple other passages of Scripture. Did you know that the Bible is the best commentary and interpreter of itself? So then rather, rather than me trying to do that through illustration after illustration and explanation after explanation, we're going to go to the Bible. And nearly every commentator on the book of Proverbs will say, I probably have, have not found one that in looking at, at Proverbs 28, 13 that has not said in some way, the best commentary on Proverbs 28, verse 13 is Psalm 32. So if you've got your Bible, just go left. 
to Psalm 32. We'll jump to the New Testament as well in a, in a little bit, but jump left to Psalm 32 and, and we're going to let the wisdom of Proverbs 28, 13 come to life in this psalm that David wrote. It's a companion psalm in some sense that David has written. It's, its partner is Psalm 51. Both were written in response to David's sin with Bathsheba, his murder of her husband Uriah, his concealment of that sin, and his subsequent conviction when the prophet Nathan came to him and the Spirit of God gave him sight to see the sinfulness of his sin. Both Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are written as a way of, one, exposing the depth of what was going on in David, and now, in some sense, Psalm 32, the lessons that he learned from it. So Psalm 32, if you're there, let's listen to David for a second. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So one of the first things I just, I just want you to note is that when he talks about blessing, Blessed is the one, blessed is the man. That's the same idea Proverbs 28, 13 holds out in a life that prospers. The underlying idea is profound fulfillment and happiness in God's world according to reality. They're talking about a similar thing. Blessedness here, as David writes it, is experienced by those who know, who know profoundly in their soul who know forgiveness. They're the happiest, prosperous, vibrant. Listen to how he learned. Verse three, four. So here he's gonna tell us how he's learned this. What a gift. Four, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then we get a little musical instruction. Selah. Which means stop for a second and consider what I just said. That's what it means. Stop and, and ponder. When David tried with all of his might, all of his mental, emotional, psychological, and spiritual vitality and energy to conceal what he had done and the web of things that spun out of it, he suffered tremendously. His whole being suffered. My bones wasted away through groaning. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I mean, can you see the pictures he's trying to paint? Can you see the imagery? It's one of the things I love about the Bible, it's so descriptive. He's saying his vitality was completely sapped out. Keeping silent about his sin brought nothing to his soul but suffering. Suffering. The sapping of life and joy and vitality. Right? Silence and concealment may, may have for a time protected the outer image, but it absolutely brings ruin to spiritual vitality and intimacy with God. It's true for David, it's true for you and I. But what I want you to see here, because we could spend a lot of time here, what I want you to see here is that silence and concealment of our sin, it only brings misery. It only brings misery to the soul. 
but you don't need me to tell you. That concealment and silence when it comes to our sin is definitely tempting. You don't need me to speak to you about that reality. You know that reality. But in light of the damage that it brings to our soul, in, in light of the, the sapping of the vitality, the life, the intimacy, the joy, the connection of our relationship with God and even with others, in light of all of that reality, why would we keep doing it? It seems to make no sense, but we keep doing it. The temptation is so strong. Well, there's probably an answer for every person that's in here. I'll give you a few. How about pride? How about pride? It takes a tremendous humility to own the reality of our sin and the sinfulness of our sin. It takes a profound humility to be able to admit that we're not who we might present ourselves to be to others or want others to think about us or what we even think about ourselves. What about fear? What kind of fear might engage us to give in to the temptation to remain silent. about fearing consequences? about fearing the consequences that would happen if our sin came to light? That certainly had to be playing in in some way to David's reality. What about fearing the consequences of other people's opinions of us? What about fearing what people might think? I mean, if you're really honest, the reality, the idea of even coming clean with the sin that is in our hearts, the thoughts, the words, the deeds that have come out of it that was born in our heart, it can almost feel paralyzing sometimes, can it? It can almost feel like a fate worse than death if we let it linger. What about ignorance? What if we're just not aware that this desire, this, this motive that's in our heart, it's giving rise to these actions or these words or these behaviors. What if we're just not aware of the sinfulness of that reality? What if we're just not aware? It's not as overt as David committing adultery with Bathsheba, killing her husband, lying about. What if it's this motive, this thing, this, this desire that's captured our heart, that's lurking in there, that's giving rise to things, but we can't even see how sinful it is? What about idolatry? And when I say idolatry, I just mean you simply love it. There's something about you that your heart, your soul is trying to hide in that sin, in that desire, in that longing, in that action, in that attitude, in that behavior, because you're getting something out of it that you want. Listen, friends, Satan wants us to stay silent because he wants us to stay enslaved to the sin. Pride Fear, ignorance, idolatry. Friends, that's not the currency of life in God's kingdom. Concealment and, and silence are the antithesis of real kingdom living. The restoration of the vitality, the restoring of the prosperity of soul, the blessedness of soul, the restoring of the dependence and the desire upon the presence of God with him and connected, it, it actually starts. It starts with the grace of conviction. David said in verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This is the convicting grace of God's heavy hand. 
God simply wouldn't leave David alone. He kept the weight and the seriousness of his sin heavy upon him. In some sense, you could say that he was harassed. David was harassed by the hand of God's convicting grace. Friends, in his steadfast love and faithfulness to you and I, greater than even David had in his day, God has given you and I his very spirit to take up residence in our hearts. His very spirit, one of the the jobs, one of the activities of God's spirit in our lives is to help us see the reality of our sin. Help us see the presence of our sin, of our motives, and of our desires that displease God, that are foolish in God's world according to reality, that give rise to behaviors and actions that are hurtful and harmful and grievous in God's eyes. He's there to help us see it. Where we might not see it in ourselves. He gives us by his grace the convicting power and presence of his spirit to weigh on us because he doesn't want us to live in silence and concealment and suffer for it. You've got to understand the weight that David is describing. He's he's giving this language and picture for the heaviness of this weight on him is grace. In fact, I caught myself yesterday when I was writing the sermon, praying while I was writing that God's heavy hand of convicting grace would torment us this week. I mean, every week, there are many of us who walk in here trying to hide, trying to conceal, trying to stay silent and deceive, wanting to be seen one way while knowing the reality of something we're trying to stuff away on the inside. It's eating away at your soul. Whether you feel it right now or you don't feel it right now, I want you to know it's eating away at your soul. It is sapping the vitality and the life and the strength that God holds out for you. We wander in here wondering, man, I just don't feel what we sing about. I, don't, I just don't have this connection with God that I hear as we read his scriptures and as we pray. He seems so distant and so far off and I, I know these things about him and I do all these things, but it feels so far apart. Your vitality is being sapped. And so I found myself praying, even yesterday as I was writing, for this heavy hand of convicting grace of his spirit to sit on us all week. That we could stop making things look so good on the outside while being so devoid of real joy and real peace on the inside. This kind of restoration of vitality, it starts from the steadfast kindness and faithfulness of God to bring upon us by his spirit the grace of conviction. But then you and I have to respond. It's not done. You and I actually have to respond. And Proverbs holds out for us in the way the book is structured. There are two ways that we can respond. There are two ways that we can live according to reality in God's world. We can respond to his convicting grace in our hearts in a foolish way. When his hand weighs heavy on us, when in his grace maybe a friend, a family member, a brother or a sister in the church brings to us like Nathan brought to David the reality of the sinfulness and the harm of something we've said or or done, 
We can respond in a foolish way by trying to shift the blame. Well, so-and-so said this, and so-and-so did this, so therefore that's why I did this, right? right she, she, she's the one that gave me the apple. As old as the garden. And we can try to minimize it, right? Is it really that bad? Is it really, you know, like Saul did when he was supposed to destroy the Amalekites and all the herds and everything and he kept some for himself and he said, oh, I did what I was supposed to do and the cow started bleeding in the background. He's like, oh, you know, hold on a second. I kept those for a sacrifice. That was for good, right? One thing after another, you know, it's like, ah, it's not that bad. Maybe we try to define it away. Right, I love what Peterson gets after in the message translation. We try to whitewash it. Make it sound less serious than it really is, right? Oh, I only speak that way and said those things to you because you know what? You got to know I'm a straight shooter. I just tell it like it is, right? And we just redefine it. I stumbled over here. I've had a rough week or so with this. Maybe when the convicting grace of God settles into our heart heavy, we try to deaden ourselves to it. Find a way to, to numb it and ignore it. Medicate it. We go shopping. We go eating. We spend excessive hours at the gym working on this, doing something to try to ignore and minimize and push away the heavy hand of his grace and conviction. Or maybe we respond foolishly by trying to criticize others in light of it. Well, do you know what so-and-so has done? Right, we tell ourselves this, right? It can't be that bad. Have you seen this person? He did this and he did this and he did this. Okay, I feel better, right? Friends, you and I, we, we're so tempted to resist the Spirit's hand and, and quench his convicting voice. And the more we respond to the grace of conviction foolishly like this, you know what happens? Moment by moment, slowly over time, as we live with hidden and concealed lies and sins, it just becomes to feel normal. It just starts feeling normal. And the malaise and the lack of vitality and the motions of life, that just becomes the sum and substance of what it is, right? Proverbs says, whoever conceals his transgressions, you won't prosper. You won't prosper. And the vitality is going to be sapped away as in the heat of the desert in the summer. But you can also respond wisely. You can also respond wisely. And that wisdom leads to an entirely different reality. He who confesses, Proverbs says, and forsakes these sins rather than trying to conceal them will obtain mercy. Listen to David in verse 5. David said, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now he says, sit and think about that. I mean, here's what he says. Here it is. I'll try to get it tight because there's so much you can be said. David owned the reality of his sin. When he says, I acknowledge it, he's talking about I owned it, right? And I didn't cover it up. I didn't try to cover my backside up on this one. 
I didn't try to find a way to make part of me look a certain way while trying to find a way to skirt out enough of the truth over here. I didn't cover myself at all. That's language of, of exposure, of clothing, right? He, he says, I'm laid naked and bare in the reality of my sin. I didn't minimize it. I didn't shift the blame. I didn't try to redefine it. I acknowledged it. I, I owned it. And I didn't try to cover it up. And he says, I confessed it. Do you know what that word really means? It means to agree with. That, that's what the word means. To agree with. He said, I agreed with God about my sin. I agreed with God about the sinfulness of my sin. And we'll see even in his companion psalm, in Psalm 51, he agreed with God about the sinfulness of his sin and God's right to judge him for it. Very different than a confession that pours out of feeling sorry for yourself. I think if I'm really honest, a lot of confessions in my life have poured out of self-pity. I've seen or heard of what my actions or behaviors or desires have caused in other people's lives or in a moment, and I have felt bad that I feel bad for doing that. I felt bad for the consequences that I'm having to feel now because of that. I'm feeling sorry for myself, and so I say, I'm sorry. That is not confession. That is an attempt at self-assurance and absolution. It's born out of self-pity. If you ever have been in a relationship with someone that's always, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the same thing over and over and over and over again, you know what I'm talking about. It's not true confession. It's self-pity. Feeling bad because now they see they've done something once again that they're going to have to suffer the consequences for doing or how they've hurt someone. Confession, agreeing with God about the sinfulness of our sin. It's a gift of grace because it's born out of his convicting work in our heart. And at the same time, it's a discipline of the Christian life because it requires our response and participation. True confession in God's world under his rule for his glory and your joy. True confession always fully owns the weight of your sin. David said it in Psalm 51, against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I'm not shifting any of it. I see not only what my sin has brought into the lives of people around me, but more than that, I see how offensive and heinous and ultimately sinful my sin is against you, God. And I own that. I see it. And I agree with you about it. This sin for us on this side of the cross is what held Jesus to the cross. I see it for what it is. No excuses, no evasions, no redefinitions. True confession owns the weight of sin. 
And true confession always speaks in specifics. It doesn't speak in generalities. I've struggled or am struggling with this or I'm so sorry if what I said right there hurt you, right? Those are good preludes to confession, right? It's a good war, it's good getting there, right? But true confession names, not only words and deeds that have hurt others and been offensive to God as we confess and, and agree with him about our sin, it begins to put name and language to the desire and the motive of our heart that gave rise to those things. The wise. Yes, I am crushed and sorry that I exploded in that moment in anger to you and raised my voice and used words I don't even want to hear come out of my mouth because what I wanted was for you to just stop and do what I wanted you to do. I had an idea of what comfort and peace looked like for me in this moment and I needed you to do it. And when you didn't, I spoke to you this way because you simply weren't doing what I wanted you to do. I'm sorry. You get down to it. Not I'm sorry if what I said and when I yelled over there hurt you. It gets to specifics. Even when it comes to agreeing with God himself about our sin. I, I think I got a time. I'm watching my clock. John Piper was very helpful for me in this. He, he wrote one time in a journal, he kept journals for years, about a time of, of spiritual malaise, like I'm kind of trying to describe in his own heart and in his own life. And in one particular day, he, he, he said this. He said, a vague bad feeling that you are a crummy person is not the same as conviction for sin. Feeling rotten is not the same as confession and repentance. This morning, I began to pray and felt unworthy to be talking to the creator of the universe. Just a vague sense of unworthiness. And so I told him so. Now what? This is what he said. Nothing changed until I began to get specific about my sins. Crummy feelings can be useful if they lead to conviction for specific sins. But vague feelings of being a bad person being a bad husband, being a bad friend, being a bad brother, being a bad sister, whatever it might be, of being a bad person are not usually very helpful. The fog of unworthiness needs to take shape into clear, dark pillars of disobedience. Then you can point to them and confess and take aim with your gospel bazooka and blow them up. He said, so I began in the moment to call to mind, asking the Holy Spirit, search me and show me Help me to see what's in me. And he began to list the things that he began to come to his mind. Loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yep, not done that one. Do all things without complaining or, or grumbling. Yep, not that one. He had a whole list of, of things. And he said, so much for any pretension to great holiness, I'm undone. This is much worse than vague, crummy feelings. But now the enemy is visible. Sins are specific. They come out of hiding. I look them in the eye. I'm not whining about feeling crummy. I'm now dealing with Christ for not doing specific things that he commanded. And I'm broken and I'm angry at my sin and I want to kill it. I want to kill my sin. He said, not me. I'm not suicidal. I'm just a sin hater and a sin murderer. True confession born out of the grace of God's conviction 
always owns the weight and the reality of the sinfulness of sin, and it gets down to speaking in specifics. And here's the thing. Ignorance is no excuse for you and I. On this side of the cross, for all who have placed their hope and their faith in Christ and Christ alone, the very Spirit of God has taken up residence in your heart. At every moment, at every time of every day, he is present with you. Search me and show me. Help me to see what I can't see about myself, what you hate in me that displeases your heart, what's going on in me and why I said what I said and why I did what I did. What's underneath it all? Help me to see. Ignorance, that's no excuse for you and I. We have his spirit to search us and to show us. But here's the thing that the Bible holds out that Proverbs 28, 13 points us to and, and David in Psalm 32 and 51 and then as we'll see just a second, a couple spots in the New Testament help us to see this kind of confession, true confession. This is the pathway back into vitality. Vitality with God and with others. Right in Proverbs 28, which we saw, it is the pathway into the prosperity of soul, the enjoyment of mercy. The enjoyment, the experiential enjoyment of mercy. It is the on-ramp and entrance into repentance. Right? He who confesses his sin, like we've been talking about, and forsakes them. See, the reality of repentance literally is a turning from one thing to another. Confession, this seeing our sin for what it is, agreeing with God about it, owning it, dealing with it in its specificity, true confession then is the entry point into real repentance where now we can see, like Piper said, the enemy of our soul, what's captivated us, what's captured our hearts, what's drawing us away. We can see it specifically. We can see how it's hurt people. We can see how it's offensive to God. We can deal with it. We can name it. We can own it. And then we can turn from it. We can turn David's help us seen in, in, in Psalm 32. It is the restoration of joy, of blessing. Living free and light with Jesus when we're not trying to conceal so many things from him and others. In fact, in the, in the New Living translation of Psalm 32, he literally says, what joy, what joy for those who, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Joy, real joy. But then I'll just show you a couple spots in the New Testament real quick. Stick with me. First John chapter one. And this is the path to vitality. John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, a kindness and the grace of conviction leading to the response of our heart reflexively of confession. God gives us, even in that spot, the gift of his cleansing. Let me remind you, that's not the cleansing of a guilty record before God. That's already been done. Once for all, it's sealed by the blood of Jesus. This is a cleansing of the heart and of the soul. Of The best way I can picture it is like of the barnacles that gather on a boat. Like When I was a kid, we lived for a few years on a lake in Missouri and we would go water skiing and play and, and we'd always kind of throw anchor out in a little cove at some point and my sister and I would go swim. My mom would float in a, in a float out to the boat but my dad would sit in a life vest and take a brush and just scrape the boat. Just scraping all the barnacles and things that accumulated on the boat 
restoring the vitality of the structure of that boat. That's what John is talking about. The once for all forgiveness, mercy, and cleansing of God is yours in Jesus, but our sin still creates these barnacles, this growth on the vitality of our spiritual life and, and this disconnect of ours in our desire and dependence upon God. It's confession. It's the pathway to cleansing that. Not to earn God's love, but to enjoy it, to rest in it more fully. Not just about confessing to be saved, it's confession with Jesus to enjoy him and his grace. Cleansing is ours in this. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It's a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. And there's cleansing. James, in James 5, said that you and I ought to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. So much there, so little time. But if we have the convicting grace and presence of God's Spirit helping us to see what we can't see about ourselves, even empowering us then to agree with God about our sin and the sinfulness of our sin and see it for all that it is in its specificity and confess it before the Lord and enjoy more deeply the connection, the desire, the intimacy we have with him and the cleansing of the barnacles of that thing off of our relationship and have our vitality restored, why do we need to say this to one another? Right, said more simply, if we can do it with God, why do I need to talk to you? Why does James say this? Well, maybe it's only true for me. It's not true for you, I don't know. But if I'm really honest, confessing my sins truly Truly confessing, as the Bible holds this picture out to God and God alone, can often become an evasive way for me to not deal with myself and my sin. I'm far more tempted to redefine, minimize. I'm a preacher. Find Bible language to make it not sound as bad to God as it really is. Confessing to one another, to a brother or sister in Christ, it begins to slay the power of pride that drives us constantly to stay in hiding. And it puts the power of the gospel on display. The masks of hypocrisy that we all like to wear so well and proudly get ripped off. And all of a sudden, we can breathe. Not the air of wildfires and whatnot, but the, the air of honesty. Be nourished by it. Again, Bonhoeffer said, confession in the presence of a brother or sister is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It's a dreadful blow to pride. Because this humiliation is so hard, we're constantly scheming to evade it. The last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned 
in this confession. The sinner surrenders. He gives up to the light all of his evil. He gives his heart to God and he finds the forgiveness of all of his sin in the fellowship of Jesus and now his brother. The expressed, the acknowledged sin loses its power. It's been revealed in the light and judged as sin. He's no longer alone with his evil for he's cast off his sin in confession, handed it over to God in agreement. It's been taken away from him and now he stands in the fellowship of brothers and sisters, sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. And now he's free to enjoy the grace of God again. Healing. Cleansing. Boy. Prospering. Vitality. What if Redemption Hill became known for such an honesty and What if we became known with each other? And just think about it. Living in the light of Christ like this, honest, humble, increasingly more honest and more humble together, and then being sent out into this place or wherever God sends you living in this light. What if, what if this is what we became known for? I'm going to let... Bonhoeffer kind of lead us to a close here. He's done a good job so far. He said, listen, friend, you're a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. So now, come as the sinner that you are to the God who loves you. He wants you. He doesn't want anything from you. There's no sacrifice you can give him, no work you can do. He wants you. You can hide nothing from him. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. And listen to this. He wants, he wants to be gracious to you. How can you even begin to believe that? How can you even begin to trust that and risk the exposure Friends, it's to be no surprise to you that it's the good news of God's steadfast love in Jesus that frees you and I to live reflexively in abandoned, a life of true confession and repentance. David kind of directed us there more clearly when he said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Remember, that's the language of covering, of clothing, of exposure, of covering nakedness of covering that which would, would bring you shame. Do you know what made crucifixion so doubly vicious apart from the violence of the act? Those who were being crucified, more times than not, before the, the post, the, the cross post was put on their back they would carry to the place they would be executed, they were stripped naked. Man, woman, child, didn't matter. Stripped naked not only in front of their tormentors and their executioners, but in front of the eyes of everyone who would gather. Naked, they would carry that thing to their place of execution. Naked, they would be hoisted up onto that post where they would be crucified in front of the eyes of everyone else, mocked, completely exposed, suffering all of that in the presence and the eyes of everyone who would look. 
David said, blessed is the one whose sins are covered. God sent his own son to be stripped naked, humiliated, and crucified on the cross publicly so that by his grace through faith in him, you and I would be clothed in his righteousness. He was stripped so that you and I could be clothed. He took upon himself the iniquity of our sins, the shame of our sins, the disgrace of our sins, the sinfulness of our sins, so that you and I could be clothed in the perfection of his righteousness and obedience before the Father. Blessed, David said, is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, who counts against no sin, the sinfulness of sin. And it's not because God just put him in a closet or swept it under a rug. It's because in his son on that cross, in that shame and humiliation, he accounted, like an accountant, your sin and iniquity to his son. He put it on him. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. He gave his son a status he didn't deserve so that by his grace, through our faith in Jesus, you and I could have a status we didn't deserve. See, when Christ becomes real and our confidence in him is expressed through faith, you and I are fully and eternally and unchangeably forgiven, yes, because of the justifying blood of Jesus. And your status in the eyes of heaven never changes. The reality of it is, the more and more you and I come to not just know that in our minds, but enjoy the grace of the gospel and enjoy life with Jesus, the more accepted we know that we are because of God's love for us in Jesus, the easier it is for you and I to see and own our sin. The easier it is for you and I to see the reality of our sin, the sinfulness of our sin, and not try to hide it, not try to conceal it, not try to evade it, because our righteousness and our identity is not in trying to be this good, moral, virtuous person or this altogether person. We know that our identity is in who we are by the blood of Jesus. Beautiful cycle. The more we delight in the grace of God and the gospel, the more free we are to see just how sinful and grievous the sin of our heart really is. And the more reflexively then we'll come to the one who has sealed our eternity by the blood of his son and told us, for us, there's no one that can stand to condemn us anymore. We're free to bring all of this into the light with joy that we might be restored in our vitality and intimacy and connection with him. And know today, tomorrow, and the next day, the cleansing and the joy of living in the light of honesty with him. A life of glad abandon, of confession and repentance. Not because we're trying to earn anything from God, but that we might have the restoration of the intimacy with the one who's already forgiven us so deeply. Without the cross, confession it would just be psychologically therapeutic. But because of Jesus, there's real substantive change and transformation and joy. Confession leading to repentance. 
is part of what it is to live skillfully in God's world for his glory and our deepest joy. We cannot allow ourselves to define a life with Jesus that doesn't involve a life of true confession and repentance. There is no healthy Christian vitality apart from it. And friends, you and I have the very empowering presence of God's spirit alive and at work in our hearts and the assurance of forgiveness before God because of Jesus. How much more do we need in order to be free? How much more do we need to convince us to stop trying to conceal and hide and redefine and and minimize the sin in our hearts Instead, just run, run free to the fount of mercy. What might God do in and with a people who are learning to live skillfully in his world according to reality? Life, confession, and repentance before him and one another. Let's find out find out let me pray for us this morning as we get ready to respond heavenly father we we need you by the work of your holy spirit through your word to teach us the wisdom of a life of confession and repentance We need you by your spirit and your word to teach us what it is to confess fully and specifically with joy. To see and to know that this is the path to the vitality you've held out for us and you have for us. Holy Spirit, we need you to show us. Show us what you see in our heart. Show us what you see in our lives. Help us to see what you see and hate what you hate. Help us to be broken hearted over what breaks your heart in our lives. Holy Spirit, give us a courage, the courage to know that when we bring it into the light, when we confess it, when we see it for what it is and we own it for what it is, it's in that that we begin to find and experience and taste into our hearts the freedom and forgiveness that we have in you. We ask that you would do this for Jesus' name and his glory in our lives and in this place and for our deepest joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.